Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, still not an officer. You're never getting promoted, <laughs> are you? Nope. And you can try to force me to anytime you want to, but I can't and I won't. Yeah, so. I'm not in any position to do that. But yeah, we are in a position to talk about the films of 1953 here on Awesome Movie Year. And in this episode, we're talking about the Academy Awards Best Picture winner and many, many other Academy Awards winner. Uh, and that is From Here to Eternity, the military drama directed by Fred Zinneman. Starring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, and Frank Sinatra. And I, I know the answer to this question, so I'm I'm setting myself up for it. But I'm excited, Jason, that maybe we're gonna turn a corner here and find a movie from 1953 that you full on like. I do. I like this movie very much. I guess we'll start uh right now. The first time I saw this was on a double feature when I was in college, and it was uh they showed on the waterfront and then this. And um, as we talked about in um, The Wild One, uh, I love on the waterfront now. Like, I think it's a masterpiece. Back in college, I thought like, yeah, this is good, but I didn't love it. But this, I loved right away. And I still think it is a very good movie. Yeah, so that was in a theater that you saw that double feature. Coolidge Corner, baby. Nice. Yeah, I actually also saw this in a theater, which is uh, it's, uh, strange that a movie from 1953, we would both have had that experience. But much later than college for me, I saw it at one of those uh, TCM Presents Fathom Events things that they do with an intro from Ben Mankiewicz or something like that. But I did go because I'd never seen it and I thought, why not see it in a movie theater? And and I liked it. I think I don't like it as much as you do, but I definitely like it very much. I did then and I still do. So this is exciting that we're going to have so much. Yeah, and, it, and it's a good film to see in a movie theater. It is because it's got great cinematography and it's, it's an epic. I mean, it's not a war epic in the tradition of like battlefield epics, but it is a very sprawling kind of story. So I think it's good to see that way. What did Ben Mankiewicz say? Did he say remember. something like, meanwhile, off screen, Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr were more than just friends. He might have. That's that's. <laughs> I don't know how a Ben Mankiewicz impression would sound, but I don't know. If that's I, I, I've heard him before, but I'd have to hear him again, you know, to. Yeah. To, to get a little better at that. I'm so. sure he had some very valuable insights. So, well, since we've we've moved to this topic, Dave, had you seen this movie before? I had, and, and going into it, I didn't even realize that this is the movie with that iconic scene. Like, that was my biggest takeaway watching it. I was like, oh, wow, this is that movie. This is that yes. movie. One yes. of the most, I don't think there's a more famous shot in cinema history. This yeah. is as famous as any shot. Those two characters, Lancaster and Kirk, kissing on the beach as the waves uh, ride up against them. Yes, that is iconic. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it later. So, this movie, in addition to, our enjoyment of it was very successful in 1953. It grossed $30.5 million at the box office on its budget of approximately $2 million, somewhere in there, according to Wikipedia. And it was the second highest grossing movie of 1953 behind Jason's favorite film, The Robe. So <laughs> quite <laughs> successful there. Hey, it shows that not everything from this year was just uh, a garbage pile, Josh. Indeed. 
Uh, and it was nominated for 13 Oscars. And it won eight of them, including Best Picture, as we've said, Best Director for Fred Zinnemann, Best Supporting Actor for Frank Sinatra, Best Supporting Actress for Donna Reed, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and Best Sound. There were other nominations. Both Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster were nominated for Best Actor. They didn't win, maybe canceled each other out. That often happens when there's two nominees from the same film. Uh, Deborah Kerr was nominated for Best Actress, and the film was also nominated for Costume Design and Original Score. So quite the haul there. Yeah, Josh, I think this had tied with uh, Gone with the Wind with 13 nominations and eight wins for most of both of those of all time at that point in time, right? Yeah, that sounds right. And William Holden, who won for Stalag 17, thought that uh, Lancaster or Cliff should have won. That's Um, nice of him. Yeah, that was nice. He's very good in Stalag 17. I mean, not that the the performances here are great, and it's been a little while since I saw Stalag 17, but uh, I feel like he was probably a deserving winner there for that one. Mm, well, then in um, the uh, alternate universe awesome movie year, maybe they're talking about that right now. Maybe they are. Um, <laughs> it also won a couple of Golden Globes for Best Supporting Actor for Frank Sinatra and Best Director for Fred Zinnemann and, and a bunch of other awards. I don't know, Jason, if you had any others that you wanted to uh, name there that you noted down or not. Nah, I'm good. Right. A lot. Good a lot of that, other awards so. that are less important than those two. So <laughs> one of certainly the most acclaimed and awarded films of the year. Uh, It was based also on a very popular and very controversial novel by James Jones, which was 858 pages long. So like a very long book. (laughs) Ah, Good analysis, Josh. Thank you. No, I'm impressed. I I was surprised that it was that long and it's impressive that they streamlined it into this film, which this doesn't feel to me at least like a movie or a story where they've cut that much out, like it's been truncated and rushed or anything like that. It's a good two hours and um, it really ramps up there in act three, obviously with uh, historical goings on taking place. Um, But Josh, and you know, this is something we could talk about later. You know, there were other attempts to kind of uh, make this into a mini series, but I was talking to you before we even knew that. And I was like, man, this thing is ripe for like, a limited series right now you can make an eight to ten episode thing of this on any of the streamers and i think it would would create uh interesting content absolutely and and one thing that they did not include in this movie because it's 1953 and and probably wasn't in that mini series that was later made for network television in 1979 is a lot of the more explicit material in the book including just explicit language but also scenarios and kinds of characters, things related to homosexuality and drug use and uh, prostitution and all sorts of things that they had to leave out of this film because of the production code and other things they also had to leave out in order to get the approval of the U.S. military so that they could shoot it on an actual military base. So certain things were sanitized here. But to me, watching this movie, not necessarily knowing exactly what those things were, I felt like this was not a super flattering portrayal of being in the military. Uh, no, but I think that's good, right? Like we did, we were not here for the propaganda, Josh. Oh, this I isn't, agree. This isn't living in the desert, the military movie right <laughs> here, you know? So this, um, yeah, no, I, I thought, uh, I, I don't think it's, um, it shows 
both negatives and positives, but a lot of negatives, right? Right, right. I mean, I'm with you. I'm not saying that it's it's uh, that I wanted it to be propaganda. I'm saying that even though they had to get the military to sign off on all of this stuff, the filmmakers, Fred Zinneman, as well as the screenwriter, Daniel Teradash, got a lot of stuff in here that seems to be fairly critical of life in the military. Yeah, but you know, you're talking about Fred Zinnerman, who's like one of the all-time legends, again, that we come to of filmmaking. Before this, he had already made like High Noon and stuff like that. And um, so we're talking about a guy who has a track record here. Well, right. But he still was working within the studio system and was required to play by the rules and was a guy who had done so. Making I'm just saying, based on the the quality of content he'd put out, maybe they gave him a little more leeway to say, even if it's not going to be show us in the most flattering light, we know it's going to show us in a fair light or something along. That way. may be true. I mean, I know at least there's there's one scene. Uh, there's a commanding officer in this film, the one who kind of mistreats Montgomery Cliff's character throughout the movie and really tortures him, trying to get him to join the boxing team. And there's dynamite Holmes. There you go, that guy. And there's a scene of his superior officers reprimanding him and basically forcing him to resign. And that was something that the military insisted had to be in the film in order to show that this was just one bad guy. And it's not like everyone in the military is like this and he'll receive some sort of discipline for this action. So, yeah, I mean, it was just comeuppance, though. Like, you know, that was, I, an, was. Earned, an earned consequence. To well, right. Action. But I think the point being that they they insisted and and I believe Fred Zinneman was not happy that they had to include that scene. He would have perhaps preferred to show that you can get away with this. Like, even as viewers, we may want to see him get that comeuppance. But in reality, a lot of these commanders in the military do torture their subordinates and nobody does anything about it. That's that's true. That's yes. fair, Josh. That is, tune into your new podcast where you're going to do exposés, Josh, on yeah, military I'm a abuse. Real- investigative reporter. So it was interesting reading a lot of these reviews because two things stood out. One is that this book was obviously very, very, very popular because they all mention it as this you know major novel now being adapted into a film. And a lot of these reviewers are really prudish, so which I think we've encountered before. So I tried to find uh, reviews that were not just all pearl clutching, even if though uh, they liked the film mostly. Well, but, who's our first one from Josh Bixby Farnweather? Well, you're gonna you're gonna get a, a name that you'll enjoy, I think. But Esquire the third. So. First, first we have A. H. Weiler in the New York Times, who said, "Out of From Here to Eternity, a novel whose anger and compassion stirred a post-war reading public as few such works have." Columbia and a company of sensitive hands have forged a film almost as towering and persuasive as its source. The team of scenarist, director, producer, and cast has managed to transfer convincingly the muscularity of the basically male society with which the book dealt. The poignance and futility of the love lives of the professional soldiers involved, as well as the indictment of commanding officers whose selfishness can break men devoted to soldiering. They are trapped in a world they made and one that defeats them. Above all, it is a portrait etched in truth and without the stigma of calculated viciousness. Man, that's just like a Nobel Prize acceptance uh, (laughs) speech for this movie or something like that. Like an introduction to, you know, ladies and gentlemen. 
from here to eternity. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he liked it. And, and I think there is a lot of, there is a lot of depth in this movie that I like that. I like that about it, that it's not just, as I was saying, like, it's not some war epic where it's just a lot of big battle scenes. I mean, there's a battle scene at the very, very end of the movie, but that's almost like not even the point. And I, I liked that about it. You know, the ramped up climax, Josh, we're talking about is the attack on Pearl Harbor. But Josh, I think that's important because it's like, um, you know, that that was a surprise attack on U.S. soil. And like uh, the fact that we don't have any kind of uh, forewarning of that coming up, it really plays into the reactions and the actions of the characters at that point. And I think that was uh, fair. And I also agree with you, Josh, that all these characters have layers to them. Yeah, and I think that that is one of the key things in the film that if the characters don't know what's coming, but we in the audience do know what's coming. I mean, as long as you know even a small amount about history, you're aware that the the Pearl Harbor attack is imminent. And certainly, even if maybe viewers today might not all know that, certainly in 1953, anyone who saw this movie was very well aware of what was coming for those characters, even if the characters weren't. Well, right, exactly. And you know, we at that point in time, the book as well, you know, was kind of, like you said, a well-known property. So they would have known that this was what it was about. However, you know, if you're showing it to a Gen Zer today and you're like, watch this movie, they might be like, what the heck? Where did that come from? Who are the Beatles? Your your Gen Z impression is almost as good as your Ben Mankiewicz impression. (laughs) So... Uh. This Wednesday character is cool. She should do other things. (laughs) Relevant commentary. (laughs) So Edwin Schallert in the Los Angeles Times said, taken from the book by James Jones, the picture assumes to delineate peacetime troop conditions, especially the conditions that existed in Pearl Harbor before December 7th, 1941. To say that it is rich in compassion would be false there is far more of bitterness about the story as it is told. These things may stand against from here to eternity in the minds of those who view what are termed precarious issues of the present. However, that doesn't diminish the great technical coup that has been scored in this feature, particularly through the casting, the direction by Fred Zinneman, and the general treatment of a story that was regarded for a long time as just too hot to handle. I can't cheer from here to eternity as a subject rich in inspirational values like that unique achievement, The Robe, but I can admire it simultaneously for its surpassing vigor, vitality, and power. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff that I hated about The Robe, this is the antidote, right? Yes. Um, You know, one of the things I was admiring is like we've talked about that style of acting that I, for the most part, can't get into. This is some... Some really good stuff. This acting is really based and grounded. And, you know, obviously we're talking about screen legends there, right? Sure. But, you know, even Sinatra, who won the Academy Award here, like that that kind of came out of nowhere. And I think, um, you know, he not only did a great job, but Zinnerman has such a history of like getting great performances out of actors. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like a Steven Soderbergh in a more current type thing, right? Like he's getting the best out of people that we might not have seen in that light before. So... Um, I like all those little side characters, too, that they, they just feel gruff and rough around the edges. And, you know, Zinneman was known as one of the originators of mixing uh, actors and real life, quote unquote, people or, you know. So I think that gave it a realism that I really liked. 
Yeah, and and Montgomery Clift is along with Marlon Brando one of the actors who brought a lot of that method background into Hollywood acting, I guess, and uh, yeah. something that was more naturalistic, more drawing on inner emotions. So it's not surprising to me that you liked these performances more than than in the robe, uh, of course. And this is a much better movie. I I would disagree with Edwin Schallert there. I think this is a much better movie. And he goes on and on in that review and other places, basically criticizing this for not being like flattering enough to the military. It was interesting to see what a mainstream journalist in 1953 thought about that. Warhawk. He's yeah, like, why can't we go back to Korea? Exactly. I mean, I think we were still, I guess we were about to get into Korea at that time, right. maybe. Um, but, you know, we're still riding on the the overwhelming approval of, of World War II and, and our participation in it. And so it was a very different kind of perspective then. So finally... Jason. Yeah, actually, uh, Josh, this is fifty-three, so Korean War was um, already happening. All right, so. there you go. So we're we're yeah. we're about to become far more jaded. Yeah. I think. I think but. it ended. It says it ended. Um, uh, now I'm reading, Josh. Oh, the okay. end. It ended in July of fifty-three. Maybe it's a more complicated time than than I am giving it credit for. But certainly, this this guy and and a lot of these journalists all seem, or at least in the reviews that I was reading, all seem really sympathetic to the idea that this complex novel, which presumably was a lot more critical of war and the military, should have a more positive positive tone, I guess, or boostery tone. I don't know. So finally, Jason, here's here's a name you'll enjoy. Mildred Martin in the mm -hmm. Philadelphia Inquirer said, the film is, if anything, superior to the novel upon which it is based. For now, freed of unnecessary vulgarity and obscenity, characters come clearly into focus and the whole, by means of cross-cutting and William Lyon's superb editing, moves in lucid dramatic line, weaving its many threads of plot into a tightly knit pattern of anger, frustration, and rugged individualism in the face of overwhelming odds. Above all, the screens from here to eternity is a brilliant, unvarnished study of confused, bitter, and tragic people at war with themselves and regimentation. It is by turns violent and quiet, with moods that change in a moment from murderous to tender, and with despair forever in the personal background of each. You know, isn't that one of the cool things about it is um, just that these people are all, they're soldiers, right? And they, they, not only love their jobs, they admire and respect it, right? But they're honest with all the, uh, well, you know, other than like Dynamite Holmes, right? Like our main characters are honest of like, you know, Pruitt's character and, you know, Burt Lancaster. Uh, they're honest about like all the kind of failings of the system and the military and the stuff that they can get away with. Right. And yet they love it anyway. I mean, I think it's late in the film after Pruitt is, he's gone AWOL and uh, he's committed a very serious crime, really. And he yet, did a murder. Josh. He did a murder. And yet it was in response. I mean, it was not, I, we disapprove of murder as we often say here on this podcast, but um, it was yeah, but retaliation for something also very, very bad. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, avenging the murder of your best friend, pro murder in that case. Yeah. Well, we can we can hash that one out. But the point is, I mean, the, the murder, the death that he's avenging of his best friend is really at the hands of the military, not just this guy, but of the system in the military. And he's gone AWOL and all this stuff. 
And yet when Lorraine, his girlfriend, is like, what, what do you mean you're going to go back? And he says, but I love the army. Of course I'm going to go back. He never questions it at all. I'm a soldier. I'm here for soldier in the rain. Right. He says it just like that. <laughs> so uh, well, we already got into our experiences with this, but is there anything else on the background of this film you want to talk about, Jason? Josh, the title From Here to Eternity comes from, of course, as you already know, Rudyard Kipling's 1892 poem, Gentlemen Rankers, uh, where he says of British soldiers in the empire who had lost their way and were damned from here to eternity. Yeah, and that's not a positive view of being in the military. I mean, I suppose it's just, it's just sort of a pretty evocative sounding title. And if you don't know where that comes from, you might put a more positive spin on it. But that definitely doesn't sound like something that makes you feel good about being a soldier or being in the military. Hmm. You don't think damning someone from here to eternity is going to make them feel good about things? Probably not. Or more heated analysis, Josh. Thank you. All right. We'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on From Here to Eternity. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Best Picture Oscar winner From Here to Eternity. And Jason, I think it's safe to say I mean, we have a few more, a couple more episodes, some number of more episodes to come, but this is going to be your favorite film of 1953. Oh, yeah. I'm about. betting the last few are going to be absolute trash, Josh. So, <laughs> Tune in for those uh, soon. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you'll love them here in the tank for 53, as we've already said. No, this is my favorite of this year. And I would say number two is uh, The Wages of Fear. You know, um, this is a and uh, the Kubrick movie is an interesting one to compare this to. Yeah. In a few and those ways, are all so. those are all movies about like manly men sacrificing themselves in the name of masculinity kind of thing. I can't help it, Josh. Yeah. You see yourself on screen, you relate <laughs> to it, and <laughs> that's what it is. Absolutely. So, but I, but this movie can hold up against the best movies of any year. Yeah. You know, this is such a a fine film, and uh, there's so many things going on, and you would think like, oh, there's you know, in a in an ensemble like this, it's easy to get lost, right? Like, for instance, that Lancaster and Kerr story, you know, sometimes we're focused on it, then it goes away for so long, but you're just emotionally invested in everyone and everything that's going on here that there's no dull spots. It just all keeps a momentum the whole ride through. Yeah, I mean, it, it weaves together multiple storylines. Um, I mean, the main characters... Burt Lancaster's uh, Sergeant Warden and Robert E. Lee Pruitt, played by Montgomery Clift. And they interact, but the two of them don't interact that much, really. They really are on kind of separate tracks for a lot of the film, but it balances both of those really well. And, and they have the romantic storylines that they each have, but they also have their storylines related to their service in the military. Um, and we have great supporting characters. Obviously, Frank Sinatra, who won that Oscar, is great as Maggio. The uh, Italian American uh, fellow soldier who befriends Pruitt, um, but a lot of actors in these small roles really shine. Whether it's the kind of villainous roles like uh, Ernest Borgnine, there is Fatso, the head of the stockade, who is the one who basically beats Maggio to death, or or Holmes, uh, what is Dynamite Holmes, the the commanding officer. These guys that we we hate. But they are also, they're not just one-dimensional villains necessarily. There's, you can see how they're shaped by the system that they're a part of. 
Yeah, so I mean, I I remember I thought even the first time seeing this, and Ernest Borgnine really just tears this thing up, you know. And uh, it would be two years later he would win Best Actor for Marty. So he was really ascending quickly around this time. You know, we've talked about like Jack Warden before. You know, one of the great character actors, and uh, he's in there. And I really liked Mickey Shaughnessy, who played Leva, who was just kind of like uh, I guess he was the the manager of the artillery or whatnot, you know, and, and, you know, it just was kind of always in everyone's business and they would be like, yeah, get back to work. You know, you'll get your what for or whatever. And it's just like, all right, give me a break. You know, like he was, he felt like a real, you know, nebbishy character that I would know. So I liked him a lot too. I think all these characters, like I said, there are layers, there's depth to them. Their interactions are of value, you know, um, and, and there's real chemistry not um, just in the romantic sense, but in this kind of camaraderie sense between a lot of these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And and I definitely thought of, I mean, this is, I Dave made some observation on Letterboxd that, that prison movies and military movies seem to have a lot in common. And I, I did think of the prison movies that we've talked about. I thought about Cool Hand Luke and I thought about the Shawshank Redemption. And I feel like there's a lot of similarities in that camaraderie that you're talking about with these men who are sort of trapped. I mean, yes, they're voluntarily in the military at this point, but they're still have to be there and they're all together and they're, they're kind of, they have this solidarity in order to get through the experience that they're all a part of. Yeah. I thought of Cool Hand Luke a lot too, more for the bullying and, yeah. you know, the abuse of right. these situations. Right. And there's that in Shawshank as well. There's the bullying and abuse. And I think, you know, it, it goes on in all of these scenarios, but to me, I think that the military stuff, the the way that these characters as in try to uh, sort of assert their individualism, as the one that one review was saying within this system was interesting. I really thought the love stories were the most interesting. And Jason, I know you talked about how the the third act really ramps up, but to me, the the part of the movie that I was the least invested in was when there was the attack on Pearl Harbor, and then it just felt like another war movie. And I, I was, I mean, it's not, it doesn't go on for that long, but at that point I was kind of ready for it to be over already. Anyway. You heard it here first folks. Josh doesn't care about Pearl Harbor or the Americans. Sorry, Michael Bay. Who we lost in Pearl Harbor. No, I mean, to me, I, I think it, you know, up the urgency, obviously of the whole thing. And like, you know, it was a good piece all the way through, but I felt like that was a, you know, just such a jolt. Um, It worked. And I mean, you know, um, really, you get to see kind of Burt Lancaster shine as a soldier at that point in time. And they've all been talking about what a good leader and what a good soldier he was anyway, and how he could have ascended to whatever part he wanted to. Because that was an interesting character trait. Like he's kind of their, their leader, kind of their boss, but he's also kind of one of the guys, right? You know, and uh, we just talked about all these other actors, but that, that guy's a, a movie star. That's the end of that. You know what I mean? Like, that's a movie star right there. Yeah. Well, like you said, everyone in the main cast here, and even some of these people in smaller parts, like Ernest Borgnine, who would go on to do much bigger things, like, this is a cast packed with amazing actors and movie stars, people who went on to get nominated for multiple Oscars, people who are incredibly famous and incredibly successful, had big box office draws. Um, you know, names that we still remember, but yeah, absolutely. Lancaster has that charisma. And I think it's the charisma that shows you why he's such an effective leader, right? And he's the kind of leader 
I think they contrast him where he's a leader, not only because he's in a position of authority, but because all the people he leads like him and want to follow him. They believe in him versus Holmes, who's just this court kind of sniveling bastard who's a leader because he's in that position and they have to follow him and no one really likes him. Right. Although, you know, at the beginning, Holmes brought up the point that you could succeed if you, you know, kind of played by the rules of the unit, which, you know, we didn't really see any other dirty actions from him other than taking it out on Pruitt that he wouldn't join the boxing team. So we don't really know what that means. Was he just like kind of obsessed with this one aspect of it? Or was this just another crack in the Holmes armor? Yeah, I mean, I think you get the sense that he's probably corrupt overall, but you're right. All we see really is his fixation on this boxing team and the way he uses his position to sort of maneuver this unit into being able to be champions and, you know, offering these promotions to anyone who's on the boxing team and things like that. Josh, you were talking about the love stories. Um, you know, that that character is very interesting, the Lorene character, right? Um, because you would think like, I mean, she's a prostitute, I'm guessing, in the book, right? Yes, yeah. In the book, it's very explicit. Although I feel like this is one of these movies where if you don't understand that she's a prostitute, then you're really missing something. Yeah. Josh, I got a lady who wants to meet you. (laughs) Is her name Lorraine? (laughs) I don't know what's going on with that. She likes your personality. No, Uh, I don't know. So, um, What I found interesting is like, you know, you have this Pruitt character who's like, you know, let's go let's get married. Let's, you know, settle down. Let's go back to the States. And she's like, no, I'm not doing any of that with you. I'm going to make all this money. And then I'm going to go buy, build a house for me and my mom. And I'm going to live out my days the way I want, which is very forward thinking of the time I'd say. Right. Right. And there, I think both of these women are in their own, you know, in the, in the limited way that you can have it in 1953 are kind of progressive, are kind of forward thinking. Like you said, she's a prostitute, basically, but she's very independent. And when she says that, it's not only that she's going to do that. She's like, I'm going to find I'm not going to marry you because I need to marry someone respectable and I need to marry someone basically wealthy. And so yeah, I didn't to, love that. No, Josh. no, no. He I talks mean, about that in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I didn't love that aspect of it. I mean, so. I think you can you can not like that about her character, but you can appreciate that the character asserts that for herself. Right. I think yes. that, that 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 that's something that they'll depict in this film. So, yeah, I mean, and then with the Deborah Kerr character, who is Holmes's wife, she's the wife of his commanding officer that Warden Burt Lancaster is having this affair with. And she's had lots of affairs with lots of other men. And they seem to have this sort of tacit understanding in their marriage that both of them will have affairs and just not really talk about it. And that's obviously something that certainly isn't depicted often in films from this period, or at least not in a way that doesn't end up with both of the characters like dead or something as punishment for their behavior. Well, um, I mean, in the book, she basically can't have a child because he cheated on her, gave her gonorrhea and like it just uh, killed her ability to reproduce. Right. And in the movie, they changed that to that she had a miscarriage and then was unable to. Yeah have any children after that. But yeah, I mean, there's some dicey things that maybe uh, equates the inability to have children with promiscuous behavior. I mean, there is the scene where despite seeming to be fine with the fact that she slept with all these other men, that Warden gets really angry at her really briefly and then kind of 
just stops being angry. And that was a little odd to me and, and seemed a little judgmental. But overall, he accepts her. He wants to be with her if he can. I mean, what stands in the way ultimately is not the fact that she slept with all these other men, but the fact that he is unwilling to go for that promotion like you're talking about and, you know, wants to stay sort of one of the guys and doesn't want to become an officer. I mean, I guess so. But there's like those technicalities of it in that, like, she can't leave an officer for someone who's not an officer, which I don't necessarily know the military rules like that. So the whole thing was that was a little murky for me why, why that would be OK. But if she left him for someone who wasn't of that rank, it would be, you know, uh, unacceptable. I think it was less about the rank and more about the idea that if he was an officer, he could choose a, he could leave the post. Whereas if he's not an officer, he is stuck being a subordinate to Holmes, right? And Holmes will never yeah. let him transfer away. So it's less about that and more about his sort of proximity to her actual husband. Um, so yeah, but it is a little murky and I feel like there's a lot of issues of, of protocol and whatever that we in 2022 probably would not worry about, but yes. Dave, you want to jump in on this? You want to play the piano or talk about uh, Ernest Bornine's playing of the piano? I'm not going to talk about that, although uh, that's good. But uh, no, I mean, my biggest like takeaway was how much I like Sinatra in this. Like, that was the big thing for me. I was like, I, I don't think I've seen any Sinatra movies. I mean, I, I, you know, I have so many blind spots from this era. And, you know, we just talked about Brando with the wild one, you know, a couple episodes ago, and I hated that so much. And so, like, you know, I, I never know what I'm going to get when I, you know, dig back into, you know, these older stars that I'm not that familiar with other than their reputations. And man, I just loved him in this. I just thought he was so great. And I was so happy afterwards when I read that uh, he won Best Supporting Actor. I was like, I would have been rooting for him in 1953, you know? Yeah. And it was a bit of a comeback and and certainly a, a change he had done roles that were more what you would expect, you know, be in a musical or where he plays mm. a singer or something like that. And this was a very different part for him, but he's great. Yeah, I, I agree. And he went on to do some more serious stuff as well as some, uh, some also still fun, you know, Rat Pack movies and that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. You know, he also, Josh, I don't know if you know, this was a well-known singer. <laughs> I had heard that. <laughs> no, he's just charismatic. You you know, you want to hang out with him. Right. Also I mean, self-destructive, which is probably a good character for a, a world famous singer who's got the uh, world that, by the balls to play. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think even if this was a change of pace for him, it definitely does draw on some of that. And it was a, it was the right kind of role for him to play. And, and uh, he was very complimentary towards uh, Montgomery Clift and Lancaster with helping him be yeah. able to play the role and everything. They're all, they're all great. Like you're saying, Jason, all, all of the actors are excellent in this film. You know, Deborah Kerr and Donna Reed are also Donna Reed, who was the other one who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, both of them are are excellent. And 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 bring, like you were saying before, Jason, like they bring layers to these characters that in other movies of this period, especially movies that are really about, you know, they're about soldiers, they're about war, they're about the bonding among men or whatever, where the female characters might be forgettable, they might be throwaways. And that's not the case at all. They're all very psychologically complex characters. They have their own agency. You know, and maybe they do things like that are not likable, but that's because that they're com complicated people, just like the men are. And they also may do things that are unlikable or ill-advised. Yeah, it's uh, this. I think also the military in that setting lends itself to that. Right. 
like not that that doesn't happen in other aspects of life, but the idea of like, hey, this is where we're at today. And this is all we know, because tomorrow we could be back at a world war um, lends a certain type of immediacy to all the actions. Right. And there is that sense. I mean, obviously, they don't know that the Pearl Harbor attack is coming, but we see newspaper headlines about the war in general. And there is one point earlier on when Deborah Kerr and, and Burt Lancaster, they're arguing about whether he can, you know, go for that officer's commission or whatever. And he says something about, oh, it'll be six months away. And by that time, we'll definitely be in a war. Like everyone's expecting them to join the war at some point. They just don't know how exactly that's going to happen. Or even which war this, well, obviously we know this war, but I'm saying if it was any other time period, well, we could probably still be in a war at that point in time, right? right so right. you could, I mean, you could equate it to literally, ah, we'll be in a war in six months. Yeah. Like, if you join the military in, in these periods, you it would expect that you're going to, you're going to have to go off to fight most likely. So uh, I do kind of want to just just give this movie a shout out. You know, we were talking about the idea that Lorraine is a prostitute and that where she works is obviously a brothel, even though, of course, they can't say any of that. And, and I do think this movie does a really good job of skirting that line. There's a great uh, match cut in this film after the scene, the famous scene. We want to talk more about that of Deborah Kerr and Burt Lancaster making out on the beach as the waves crash over them. And then the, the camera is showing just the waves crashing, which is obviously a metaphor for fucking. And then it kind of dissolves into this plume of cigarette smoke as uh, Pruitt and Lorraine are lounging on this couch, which is obviously also code for they just had sex. And it's great that it dissolves from one of those to the other. And I feel like that's a very clear moment where they're telling you like, look, we can't show you this. We can't say this, but you know what we're trying to imply here. There you go. There's the film critic coming out for, <laughs> for a bite. Um, that shot, Josh, was not planned that uh, making out in the waves. It was like, they were on set, they were shooting the scene and Zimmerman just said, you know, let's, let's give this a try. And that's kind of cool when that magic happens. That is. And I love too that, I mean, obviously, Dave, you're saying you didn't know, but if you do know going into this movie, oh, it has that scene and that's such a famous scene, you figure that's got to be like the climactic moment of the movie, yeah. but it's not. And because of course they didn't know that it would be so famous and it's just kind of almost a throwaway thing that happens very early on in the movie and, and they, they move right on, but it's, it's still, it's still brilliant. Yeah. So Josh, should we rate this thing? Yeah, let's do it. Out of five extramarital military affairs. Sure, why not? Have have all the have all the extramarital and military affairs you want. Out of uh, so, how does a half work with this one? Yeah, it's yeah, a one sided affair. It's, it's unrequited it to, uh, or something. Well, you know what? We should change it to five Hawaiian shirts because this was a movie that, as we've talked about in fashion and other movies, this helped popularize the Hawaiian shirt. Oh, so, did it? That's that's yeah. great. Yeah, there are a lot of Hawaiian shirts in this film. Yeah. So out of five Hawaiian shirts, it gets four Hawaiian shirts from Big Daddy. All right. I'm, uh, I'm, I don't know why you've nicknamed yourself that, but okay. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, Ernest Borden gets to be fatso, and then, you know, we have a Prue gets to be Prue. I'll be Big Daddy. Why not? I'm going to give it three and a half out of five. Like I said, it, it fell off a little for me toward the end, but it's a really good movie and a classic that's, that's one of those movies that if you just know iconic images or whatever, like you'll get caught up in it. It's, it's a great story. So three and a half for me, Dave. Three and a half from the tit mouse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that nickname. 
I think I gave it three on Letterboxd, but I've been thinking about it. I'm going up to three and a half. It deserves All that right. extra half of a Hawaiian shirt. We got three Dave. and a half from Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's really, it started out like amusing and then you just kind of kept worsening it as it went on. So good job there. Hey, are you reviewing my act? <laughs> I am. I'm reviewing your presence on this podcast. Oh, all right. Good. Make sure you give us five stars and put it in the commentary. Yes, please. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of From Here to Eternity. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Best Picture Oscar winner From Here to Eternity. And I mean, legacy wise, this is this is an enduring classic. This is certainly not one of those movies that won a bunch of Oscars and then people ended up forgetting about it. Still something that they show on the big screen. It's something that like like that iconic beach scene. If you ever see some sort of montage, that's like the magic of the movies. It's always in there. I remember at the Lowe's cinemas uh, opening, like there was like a big montage every time you went to the movies when I was growing up. Right. And, uh, you know, it's been spoofed many times as well. Sure. Yes. Uh, yeah. It is one of those things that maybe doesn't have quite the impact because if you've seen a lot of of parodies of it or, or homages to it or whatever, but... I think it does in the context of the scene, and it's beautiful, you know? It is beautiful, and, uh, yeah. yeah. And it's also interesting that Zimmerman chose to shoot this in black and white because he could have shot it in color, um, but he felt that the the necessity of whatever gritty feel, it wouldn't have had it if they had shot it in color. Yeah, and I do wonder, because some of the footage in the climax is actual footage from the Pearl Harbor attack, and that might not have existed in color. I'm not sure about that. I don't know either. But Josh, going back to Zinneman, you know, when I said he's an actor's director, he uh, directed 19 actors to Oscar nominations. And he directed, as it says, a number of stars in their U.S. in their film debuts, including Marlon Brando, Rod Steiger, Julie Harris, Montgomery Clift and Meryl Streep. Yeah. I mean, he's one of these guys, as we've talked about in this season a bunch of times, who just did everything. He just worked in all genres, you know, he was a studio, I don't want to call him a journeyman because he made numerous classics, but he was, he was a company man, you know, he went where he was told and he did the best that he could possibly do with every assignment that he was given, including creating a bunch of classic movies. In addition to this, I mean, he directed High Noon, he directed A Man for All Seasons, he directed Oklahoma. I mean, all of these movies that are enduring, you know, major cinematic achievements. Right. And we we talked about Julia in our 77 season because it had all those Oscar nods and none of us were familiar with it. But now I'd really like to see it. A Man for All Seasons was a, a good movie. I like that movie a lot. It, it also won Best Picture and uh, Director. Yeah. I mean, I, I like High Noon a lot. He directed a lot of other Westerns that I'm not familiar with. And I actually saw Oklahoma in a theater as well. And uh, not my favorite High Noon, I guess, if you were making a list of best Westerns, it would probably top a lot of lists. Absolutely. I mean, if it not top, it'd certainly be way up there. And you talk about the potential like progressive politics of this film, or at least trying to get some of that within the constraints. I mean, High Noon is a movie that's absolutely doing that as well. He was nominated for 10 Oscars. He won Best Director for From Here to Eternity, obviously, as well as for A Man for All Seasons. And Won an Oscar for a documentary short film that he made called Benji. So 
talk about versatile, uh, worked until 1982 when he directed his final film called Five Days, One Summer with Sean Connery, which I'm not familiar with. Hmm. Neither am I, Josh. Neither am I. So I'll move on to James Jones, who was the author. What I found interesting was that this is really part of a military trilogy that he wrote. And one of the other two books was The Thin Red Line, which uh, we last saw Terrence Malick adapt. And uh, I don't think anyone's adapted the last book called Whistle. No, but yeah, I was also surprised about that with The Thin Red Line, which I've seen the Malick version. I guess there was a previous adaptation that I wasn't aware of that at all. And what was fascinating to me too was that that is sort of the pseudo sequel to this, that he took the characters of Pruitt and Warden. And even though, of course, the spoiler, uh, Pruitt dies here at the end of From Here to Eternity, he wanted that sort of personality to continue. And so he renamed the characters, but they're essentially those same people as uh, described, you know, fighting in World War II and Thin Red Line. It, that is a war story. That's not a lead up to war. That is in the thick of the war itself. So that was kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, I love the Malik movie. That's a yeah, great movie. It is. But all these guys, like, we're just, it's like, like, I'll just run it off real fast, Josh. Burr Lancaster, four best actor noms, and he won for Elmer Gantry, Montgomery Cliff, four best actor noms, you know, known for Place of the Sun and Red River. We know Sinatra won here. And I think he was also nominated for Pal Joey and, of course, started the Manchurian Candidate, you know. Um, and then, you know, Donna Reed, we know uh, she won. She won here also, right? Yeah, she did. And then she her movie career is basically this and It's a Wonderful Life or the right. notable ones. And she was mainly known as a sitcom star for the Donna Reed show, which ran for like 10 seasons or something. I mean, it's a it's an all timer. And then yes. Karen, Karen played by Deborah Kerr. Black Narcissus, Night of the Iguana. So all these, all then, and we already said Ernest Board 9 won for Marty, Star of McHale's Navy, and a voice at SpongeBob SquarePants. So well, that's the most important thing. Yeah, Deborah mm -hmm. Kerr nominated for six, six Oscars. Make sure, you know, get her honors. In yeah, absolutely. Movie. Jack Warden had uh, two, I think, as well. Yeah, and uh, she, Kerr, she won an honorary Oscar in 1994. So uh, Sinatra also, he starred in another James Jones adaptation, Some Came Running, which I haven't seen, but that was another James Jones novel. Uh, Josh, we talked about the cinematographer, Burnett Guffey, who also won. Uh, didn't he win for Bonnie and Clyde? Did we talk about? He did win for that, I think, as well. Yes, you are correct. He won for this and for Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know, this is just an all-star team all in all here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have any favorite roles from any of these actors in, in later films? It's a good question. I was thinking about that, Josh, because it's got to be right. Manchurian Candidate for Sinatra. Would you agree? Yeah, Manchurian Candidate is great. And I haven't seen some of the other big serious movies, serious roles that he's known for, like Some Came Running or The Man with the Golden Arm. Um, I think aside from Manchurian Candidate, the only other Sinatra movie I've seen is the original Ocean's Eleven, which is not a great movie. Yeah, it's all right. He's he's fine in it, though. He's fine. sure. But that's more of that's one of those movies where it's more like Sinatra playing Sinatra kind of thing. Right. I think this is a better use of Sinatra's personality because you yes. still get that here. Yeah. Josh, did you watch any of the miniseries? That was no, around? no. So this was adapted for TV, as we were saying. Uh, a first attempt in 1966 as a half hour show, which I don't know if that would have been a comedy, but that was a pilot that didn't go anywhere. But it was adapted in 1979 as a six hour miniseries. 
starring uh, William Devane as Warden. That's Burt Lancaster's character. Steve Railsback as Pruitt in the Montgomery Clift role. Natalie Wood in the Deborah Kerr role as Karen. Kim Basinger in the Donna Reed role as Lorraine. And my favorite, Joe Pantoliano in the Frank Sinatra role as Maggio. You can watch it on like a VHS rip on YouTube. It's not officially available anywhere, but I did not have six hours to devote to this. I got a I got a fun fact that I heard um, uh, listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast. Since we're recording this right after Christmas, Josh, and yes. uh, we all can agree, Die Hard, greatest Christmas movie ever. I think we all know that to be the case. Mm. Um, did you know, Josh, that Frank Sinatra was contractually um, obliged? It was in his whatever rights he owned. He had the rights to play John McClane before anybody else. So he could have said in in 1988, I guess it was, right? He could have said like, yeah, I'm going to play John McClane. And they would have had to make Die Hard with a, yes. an aging Sinatra. That would have been something. That would have. Yeah, I assume he owned uh, the rights to the or the character, the, owned book, the, yeah. the novel. It's based on a novel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Sinatra by 1988 wasn't really acting anymore. I mean, the height of his right. acting career was in the 50s and 60s. And then he just kind of tapered off yeah. from there. So it doesn't surprise me that he didn't want to do it. But uh, that was a journey. I was waiting to find out where you were going with that, starting with Die Hard being a Christmas movie. <laughs> yippee ki you motherfucker. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'm, I'm going back to that miniseries. I am, I am kind of fascinated about it, uh, just uh, wondering how that turned out, especially with that interesting casting. And also the fact that it was launched must have been successful ratings wise, because then they decided to make it an ongoing series in 1980. With some of the same cast, William Devane and Kim Basinger returned, but uh, Gary Swanson came in as Pruitt and Barbara Hershey replacing Natalie Wood as Karen, who I guess must not sail away at the end anymore. Um, only lasted for 12 episodes. And I really don't know how you would do this as like a, an ongoing narrative. I don't think, I think it would really lose a lot of its power, but uh, they tried. I think you could totally, like I said, do an eight episode and out on this thing. Right. Absolutely. And I think especially because it's based on that novel, which obviously has a lot more themes and I, you know, concepts and, and things that they couldn't have shown back then. I could absolutely see some streaming network getting the rights to this and, and deciding to make that. And it probably wouldn't be as good. Josh, which of the characters would you turn into a female if you were making it now? Like, which of the military characters? I, I mean, I feel like you could make Maggio a woman, maybe. I don't know if that would work. Um, Maggio, I think, it already is like a composite of multiple characters from the novel. So if you're making this as a miniseries based on the novel, maybe you can bring in all of those characters. Um, I, I don't know how well it would work. And of course, you couldn't really do that either, because unless it wasn't set in 1941, there weren't any women in the military at that time at, at all. Yeah, that's fair. I think you would have to update where where and when it's taking place. But And you know, I think that you... would lose the power. I mean, as we keep saying, part of what makes this movie, this story so effective is that it's in the lead up to Pearl Harbor that we in the audience know is coming and the characters don't. And you're right, because I just think, you know, they're in Hawaii. Right. It's isolated. It's obviously before the time of social media. Like this is the world. This is it. You know, so. Right. 
So maybe we've ungreenlit the miniseries here. Well, I think you can do it. It just has to take place in the original time period. I mean, it's possible. They did a Catch-22 miniseries recently. They didn't make it take place in 2020 or whatever. So I think Dave, did you know about that Catch-22 miniseries? I I can't say I did. See, Josh. It was pretty good, actually. It was on Hulu. I kind of liked it. It's got George Clooney in it. Subscribe to Hulu, Josh's recommendation of the day. <laughs> All right, we've really run out of gas on this. So unless there's anything else on the legacy of this film, Jason, that you want to talk about? Watch it, watch it. It's a great movie. I agree. It is a great movie. And hey, even see it in a theater if you get a chance to, because it's a great experience in that way as well. So that is From Here to Eternity. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can battle us online and on social media. You can. Why not? Give it a shot. We're Awesome Movie Year. On Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod. On Twitter, AwesomeMovieYear.com. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, Go for Jason, is uh, being abused by Fatso right now. But uh, I don't think that's going to be for long. I should have a new website coming out soon, even if it's not Go for Jason. I think that's going to be Eat This Comedy. So be on the lookout for EatThisComedy.com and also Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party on Instagram. Yeah, very exciting developments in the world of Jason Online. Um, my website, joshbellhateseverything.com, is uh, also on uh, its last legs there. But uh, you can check me out at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, as I always remind you, when I buy a big tub of popcorn and you think I'm not going to share it with you, I'm a gentleman. And then I do share it with you. It's Dave's pick, Josh. So I'm going to be a gentleman and let Dave announce his pick. Wow, that was a... Uh... Interesting. I'm not sure I knew where it was. It was right? another journey there. So, <laughs> I got there. I got, I got there. You know, whatever. Wow. Well, I'm going with House of Wax, the Vincent Price classic horror film. So tune in next time for House of Wax. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Going back to Zimmerman and what a uh, Zinnerman. Zinnerman. No R. Zinnerman. Zinnerman, Zinnerman, Zinnerman. I know, I'm... Dave, cut all that crap. <laughs> Just say it once and then Dave will insert it every time that you need yeah. it. Yeah, like Chef on uh, South Park. Yeah. <laughs>